Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Memorial tributes continue to pour in for Stephen Sondheim since his death last Friday. At age 91, Sondheim was musical theater's most respected composer-lyricist of the past six decades. Lucid and creative to his last day, we'll have a City Light Sondheim tribute on Thursday's show. There was another loss in the arts world over the weekend, that of the lamentably young designer Virgil Abloh, who died of a rare form of cancer at age 41. In 2019, the High Museum of Art in Atlanta presented the first museum exhibition devoted to the modern genre-bending artist and designer, who also became director of Louis Vuitton menswear. A portion of our interview about the Virgil Abloh show will air tomorrow on City Lights. Our condolences to the Abloh and Sondheim families. Later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans sits down with two Atlanta entertainment entrepreneurs. Kayla Shelton and Don Cannon will explain how they came up with the Tomorrow app, an app that allows freelance creatives to search for specialized jobs in an instant. First, in her book, The Korean Vegan, Joanne Lee Molinaro writes, as children of war, scarcity and hunger were embedded in my parents' bones long before I began to complain about our lack of McDonald's at the dinner table. As a result, Talking was discouraged. We didn't spill our guts during dinner. We filled them. Joanne Lee Molinaro has long overcome her desire for American fast food. She celebrates her heritage and its cuisine on TikTok and now with her new cookbook, the author joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And what a beautiful introduction. Well, you provided the inspiration, I must say. You are a lawyer by training, Joanne. When did you start sharing recipes on TikTok? Well, I didn't start sharing recipes on TikTok until last summer. You know, we were in the middle of quarantine and I was working like a, you know, like a crazy lady around the clock. But notwithstanding how busy I was, there was so much anxiety sort of fueling my everyday. I downloaded this app called TikTok that I barely knew anything about mostly as a way to distract myself from everything that was happening in the world. And before I knew it, 
I was inspired to share cooking videos, just like so many other people were on TikTok. And that is how it all got started. I mean, largely by accident. Okay. But now you have upwards of 2.7 million followers. This is phenomenal. (laughs) How did that hit you? (laughs) Well, first of all, you know, it took far less than a year to get, you know, millions of followers. And that was surreal, astonishing and overwhelming. Obviously, it was incredibly exciting. I had never experienced that kind of attention on the internet before. And I'd been blogging for many years. I would, you know, has been a blogger for four and a half years, but never did any of my posts go, quote, viral before. And here I was where many of them were being viewed by, you know, tens of millions of people. It was very exciting. So what do you think it was about your TikToks that, resonated with people so instantly. Well, Lois, I think that there are a lot of things sort of going on at that time that I think facilitated the amplification of my videos. Number one, we were, again, we were all isolated. We were all stuck, you know, in quarantine, literally across the world. So people were, you know, literally hungry for content. And the kind of content that tended to bring people together in a virtual way, since we couldn't do so in a physical way. My content, in addition to being videos of me making food, which again was something that we could no longer do with each other physically, also provided stories. That was really what set my content apart from the vast majority of other food content. So while I was cooking, I would be talking about my mom and my dad, who, quite frankly, I missed a great deal because I couldn't see them very much during quarantine. Or I'd talk about, you know, what it was like growing up as an Asian American in Chicago or, you know, why I like this particular food that I'm making. And I think that what I was trying to recreate was that really special, intimate time that you often have in your kitchen with your mom or your dad or your family members, with your friends, or even sitting at a dinner table when you're having a dinner party with your closest group of friends. These are things we could no longer participate in, and I wanted to recreate that on TikTok. You speak powerfully about the emotional role of food in our lives. Would you give us some examples of that in your family history and your trajectory? Yeah. Well, I think that there are some people who view food purely functionally, like I just need this food in order to live and survive. And I've never been that person. I love to eat, Lois. I don't know about you. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Food, I mean, the more varied, the more delicious. I love food. I get very excited about it. But there is also this emotional component to it. For my family, food was a way for particularly the women, you know, my mom, my grandmothers, and my aunts to show love and affection. Love and affection is not easily shown in my family and particularly in my culture. It's not, we don't say, I love you. That's not, I don't think I've ever heard that from my mom. And and it's more just here, I made you some kiranmari. And in that way, she's showing her love for us. And because of that, throughout my childhood, these moments where we got together as a family to break bread together, to share food together, were some of the most loving moments in my memory, because it was in that breaking of bread that there was this sort of implied communication of love, support, solidarity, understanding. And, you know, I remember specifically right after I had gotten my divorce, it was probably the lowest point in my entire life. And I remember my mom and my dad took us out to dinner because it was my birthday, just a few weeks after I had finalized my divorce. And I remember my father, while we were eating naengmyeon together, he, you know, puts up his glass and he says, congratulations. And I thought he was congratulating me on my birthday, which I thought was very strange. And it turned out that he was congratulating me on my divorce. 
And that was such a powerful and emotional moment. And it's not a coincidence that it occurred while we were eating dinner together. Oh, yes. Just because people may not express their feelings outwardly. And I think this is especially true of older generations. Certainly your grandparents' age doesn't mean they don't have them. You write about that and you spoke about it in one of the TikToks. That must have been a stunning moment for you when you realized how much support you had from your father about your previous marriage. Did you ask him why he hadn't spoken up sooner? (laughs) Yeah, Lois, I mean, that's it. I think that that's sort of the natural question. And, And just to give a little context, you know, my father, very typical of his generation, he, we never talked about my feelings. Like that was not a subject that was comfortable between us. We hardly talked, to be honest. My father is very stoic. He did his job as, as a dad. He, you know, earned money for us. He helped to pay the bills. He drove us around to soccer team and orchestra, you know, and even cooked on occasion for us when my mother was working late. But he didn't do any of the other dad things that you saw on TV, like in Growing Pains or Family Matters. And and I think for a long time, I sort of resented him for not being that typical American dad that I thought, you know, prevailed across families across the United States. And I had a very tough time with my first marriage and my father never said anything. And it hurt me for a long time. But when he said that at dinner, it was like all of the things that he didn't say were being injected into that one word, congratulations. And I didn't need anything after that. It was everything that I needed in that one word, in that one moment. And that moment sort of changed the way I viewed my dad forever after that. If you are just joining us, This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Joanne Lee Molinaro, TikTok chef and author of The Korean Vegan. The subtitle of your book is Reflections and Recipes from Amma's Kitchen. Would you talk about your grandmother and her role in your life? Oh, yes. So I had two very influential grandmothers in my life. My first one was Saul Halmoni. She was my mother's mother, and she immigrated to the United States first. And so she really, you know, raised me from when I was born to about when I was three years old. So some of my earliest memories as a child, they all involve my grandmother, my Saul Halmoni. When I was three, my brother was born, my little brother, and that's when my chinhalmoni, or my father's mother, also immigrated to the United States, which is very traditional. You know, when your son has his son, then it's time to pick your, you know, pack your bags and and go over there and help to raise him, which is what my chinhalmoni did. (laughs) And so many of my memories, you know, as a toddler through all the way through high school, very much about my chinharmoni, whether it was cooking food, uh, reading to me during bedtime, teaching me Bible stories. She was very religious, helping with cooking and you know, making sure I picked all of the vegetables from our backyard for her. She taught me so much. I mean, any anything from how to swing really, really fast to, you know, how to be a good student and how to obey my teachers and all of those things. And I think these are lessons that many people learn from their mom and dad. I learned from my grandmother. I love the photo of her standing up on a swing in your backyard. That, that was fantastic. She taught me that. <laughs> Not easy for some of us. No. <laughs> it was touching to learn that you felt self-conscious about the fact that foods in your household were not those advertised on television commercials or necessarily 
what you saw in the homes of friends you had, and specifically you write about kimchi, the delicious Korean cabbage, marinated cabbage dish, which has a strong aroma, some might say pungent. When did you overcome that self-consciousness? Oh, wow, Lois. I feel like even today, there's like a little bit of self-consciousness. Like, I don't know if I would be brave enough to bring kimchi with me to the office. (laughs) Really? Yes. I think, you know, I remember very clearly, you know, certainly growing up as a little girl, like in kindergarten, even when I, you know, crack open my lunchbox and realize it looks very, very different from everyone sitting around me, you know, as a five, six-year-old, of course, that's going to make you feel some sort of way. In high school, I think I became much braver and I was like, you know what? I'm proud of my food. I like eating this food and I'm just going to bring it. And also, you know, when you're in high school, like there was no set time for me to eat lunch. It wasn't like I was eating lunch in the cafeteria anymore. I was in, you know, rehearsals and, you know, going from this activity to the next. So I was oftentimes eating in a hallway, you know, where nobody would see or smell. I remember in college, And by this time, I thought that I'm, you know, I was majoring in Korean American studies. I was very proud of my heritage. And it was during creative writing class, I brought with me a tray of kimbap, which is a very traditional Korean dish, along with some kimchi as a side. And I was treating my entire creative writing class to a traditional Korean meal. I walk in and the first thing somebody says is, God, what is that smell? And he's covering his nose. And this is, you know, when I'm treating them to, uh, you know, a meal. And that really hurt me. Like, I was still very much affected by that. And I remember that I apologized. Oh, I'm so sorry for the smell. So even then, even after all that I had learned and, you know, how much more confidence I had gained, my instinct was still to cover up my food. And so that instinct, something that I learned from my parents, unfortunately, just through, you know, a survival instinct, assimilative instinct is not easy to overcome. But that's one of the reasons I love doing what I do now with the Korean vegan and the cookbook is that it challenges everyone, but it also challenges me every day to remain proud of who I am and the food that I grew up eating. Mm. I'm not surprised to hear that you had creative writing as a class because your writing and your storytelling is exquisite, which ultimately the TikToks and the narrative in the cookbook, it's all storytelling it comes down to. Joanna, I had to smile. My personal reference was not as much of a contrast, but as a child, I shared some of what you felt because in my household, we didn't have white bread. We didn't have wonder bread. We had kosher rye bread with seeds or challah. And I used to think my sandwiches just looked so foreign, cold cuts, corned beef. Why couldn't I have bologna on white bread with mayonnaise like normal kids had? And I was thinking while reading your book how fortunate we are now to be in a time when we feel it's safe enough, even though there may be pushback even though we may encounter some nasty stereotypes uttered, it's safe enough to come forward with our heritage, not only share stories through cuisine, as you do, but to feel proud of it. Isn't it funny? Because I went through the same thing, Lois, as you did. Like, I would demand that my grandmother packed me white bread with bologna. And to her, she must have been like, why do you want to eat that? Like, really, that's not bread. Like, that's what it like. I'm packing you good food and you want bologna. And it's just, that's the irony. But I agree with you, Lois. I think that there is an audience out there that is so welcoming 
of cultural foods, of foods that help to shape our identity, that want to hear the stories beneath the food that give us that sort of safety that I think is necessary for us to feel proud and to flourish uh, along with our food, to innovate around some of our cultural foods. And, and of course, to share the stories that go along with that. And that is, you know, one of the most rewarding aspects about what I do is this community that sprang up around me, again, largely accidental, that's, you know, sitting here never tried kimchi, never tried tenjang before, but so excited to do so. Popular TikTok chef and author Joanne Lee Molinaro. Her new cookbook is The Korean Vegan. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with the author of the cookbook, The Korean Vegan, Joanne Lee Molinaro. Korean Vegan. For many of us, an introduction to Korean food, if it isn't via kimchi is Korean barbecue. All of this fabulous beef prepared over the sizzling grill at your table. Would you talk about what must seem a contradiction in terms with Korean vegan? <laughs> well, I used to think it was a contradiction in terms too. <laughs> When the idea of going vegan was first posed to me by my then boyfriend, now husband, I basically was like, no, that's not possible. I'm Korean. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was possible. And of course, what that did was it evinced a complete naivete and ignorance of what Korean cuisine really is. It is largely vegetables and plant centric. You know, these panchans, which are these side dishes, they're all vegetables and beans and plant foods that may be marinated in fish sauce and things like that. But that's really the only thing that kind of takes it out of the vegan realm. You know, grilled meat, which is the Korean barbecue, certainly among the most popular Korean foods here in the United States, because Korea was such a poor country for much of its existence, meat wasn't something that was very regularly on the dinner table, certainly and not at my house. We were mostly vegetables and occasionally, you know, some meat dishes and fish dishes. So if you really sort of dig a little and pull that thread, you'll find that in actuality, Korean cuisine is certainly not one dimensional enough to simply encapsulate grilled meat. And also, in my opinion, you take some of that Korean barbecue sauce and pour it over some mushrooms, some eggplant, some bok choy, whatever you want. It's going to taste just as delicious. You're not going to miss the meat. Trust me, I've done it many times now. It's really much more about the flavor, the sauces and the textures. Though you note that it took some experimentation before you could find the right substitute or alternative for fish sauce. Oh, it sure did. Uh, I will say 
I think fish sauce was the first thing that I was like, okay, I got to come up with something for this because it is so prevalent in Korean cooking. And also because it is a fundamental component of kimchi, which in my mind, far more than, you know, grilled meat is synonymous with Korean cuisine. And I knew that you needed to have fish sauce for the proper fermentation of kimchi. So it was actually one of the first things that I set out to veganize. And there's a lot that goes into fish sauce. It's not just a fishy flavor. You also need to make sure that it has the properties of fermentation to facilitate the proper pickling of kimchi. And it, it's got to have that sort of deep umaminess on top of the fishiness um, in order to really pack the punch that is required for some of these stews that rely heavily on fish sauce. So there's a lot that goes into it, but I will say one of the proudest moments was when I gave it to my mother and she kind of looked at me and she was like, this is excellent. How did you do this? And that made me very happy. <laughs> I can imagine. And how long did it take you to learn about the little but important things like fermentation and how long that takes and how you do it without fish sauce? We had like a two-day period where, you know, my mom and my two aunts and my cousin, they all came over to my house and we started making kimchi. And we were in the kitchen experimenting with kind of different ways of doing it. We had like three different batches going on at the same time. And really it was my my mother's younger brother's wife. There's a title for everyone in Korean. My wesungmo, she learn so much from her own mother about kimchi making. And now is the right time to talk about it because right now is kimchi making season, right? And she learned so much and she shared so much of that incredible knowledge with all of us. And through that process, we were able to put together a recipe that I'm very proud of. My mother, just a couple of months ago, she was having some of the quote, vegan kimchi and she was so impressed with how it withstood time much better than regular kimchi. And she said, you know what? I, I think I'm just going to use this recipe going forward because it's fresher. It's just brighter. It doesn't go sour as quickly as regular kimchi. It just maintains this really crispy, crunchy deliciousness for much longer. And yeah, again, when your mom tells you that something that you may taste really good, it's very little that you can be more proud of. Oh, I know. And mom, grandmother, I hope you have time to just share a couple more stories in terms of recipes you've received from your parents and grandparents, particularly the chocolate sweet potato cake. Yeah. So the chocolate sweet potato cake was really kind of my attempt to pay respect to my mother and my mother's parents. My mother was a refugee from North Korea. She was born in North Korea. Her parents were born in the region that is now known as North Korea. And they fled their village right at the beginning of the Korean War you know, obviously they were told they needed to evacuate their village because they were under attack. And so they, you know, packed up their things. My grandparents had two little girls then. My mother was one year old and they walked over to the Yellow Sea where they were told there would be a U.S. Navy ship waiting to take them to safety. It took them two weeks to get to the Yellow Sea. And by that time, their infant daughter, my mother, was starving uh, to death you know, they didn't have food. Like, it's not like they had like, you know, Lunchables to take with them on this journey. So they had no more food and my mom was starving and there, it was a very harried time. Um, they almost decided to drown my mother because they didn't know how else to handle her agony from starving. Luckily they were saved from doing so. An American GI provided them with a chocolate bar and it was because of that chocolate bar that my mom didn't die. Um, and she had something to sustain her uh, through the trip to the southern region of Korea. 
when they got to the southern region of Korea, they were homeless. My mother was a refugee. My grandparents were refugees. Their first daughter were refugees. And they were literally going from home to home, knocking on the doors, begging for scraps of food, for a place to sleep at night, even if it was in their like farm. And um, my mom used to tell me when she was a little girl growing up, one of her favorite things to do would be to run out at night in the middle of the night after the fields had been harvested and dig through the soil to find whatever leftover rotten grubby pieces of sweet potatoes had been left behind because they weren't good enough for the harvest. And she would just sit there and she would eat them raw in the middle of the night because she was so hungry. And that was her favorite thing to do. So this chocolate cake with, you know, sweet potato frosting, it was really uh, an attempt to kind of, again, pay homage to the two things that saved my mother's life, which was that chocolate bar and the sweet potatoes she ate when she was growing up. You also celebrate that chocolate bar with s'mores. <laughs> that is that is correct. That's not in my cookbook, but it is <laughs> on my TikTok. Uh, I love that, you know, somebody had challenged me to do a food video that really showed the story of my mother's survival. And I was like, well, what better way to do that than a chocolate bar, but also the decadence of a s'mores bar, which really was meant to represent kind of, you know, where we are as a family now. We're safe. We don't have to worry about where we're going to get our next meal anymore. We're together. We're all healthy. And in many ways, those are luxurious. Mm. Finally, the TikToks, by definition, are very brief. And you have the talent to boil down a compelling story to a very brief period. Many of the Korean dishes seem labor-intensive, however. Should we be intimidated by that, Joanne? I can understand why someone might be intimidated. It's not just that some of these recipes may require more steps, but a lot of them require, you know, a lot of ingredients and ingredients that the average person may not be familiar with, like tenjang or gochugaru or even gochujang. These are words that are not only difficult to pronounce for some people, but they don't even know what it looks like, right? So I think that it's understandable to be intimidated. However, I would say that there are so many recipes in Korean cooking that literally are like five ingredients, you know, because they're these panchans I, I spoke of, these side dishes or garnishes that are designed to be very simple and really intended to prolong the longevity of that particular vegetable, right? Pickling is really about how can we make this food last longer? Because spoiling is like the anathema for people who are hungry all the time because they're poor. So that's really what kimchi was meant to do is to provide food for a much longer period of time because you know, Korean people, again, it was, it was a fairly poor country for so much of its existence. So add a little salt, a little bit of this and that, and you got yourself a beautiful kimchi, you got yourself a beautiful muchim or a seasoned vegetable, a dressed vegetable. What I like to do in my cookbook is I actually categorized every single recipe in the book as easy, medium, and practice makes perfect, which is my encouraging way of saying this one's hard. <laughs> so, and it's it's been so joyous, Lois, to see so many people who literally have no idea what Korean cuisine is about say, I just made tenjang jjigae today and it's absolutely delicious. Or I made the kale muchim and I'm going to eat this every single day now. It's so doable. You just need to kind of like get your feet wet, get in there and sort of try it. And you'll realize just how unintimidating it can quickly become. The popular TikTok chef and author Joanne Lee Molinaro. Her new cookbook is The Korean Vegan. More information about Joanne and her cookbook is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear about another app that helps freelance creatives seek out jobs in their area in an instant. 
You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Since the pandemic hit, millions of Americans have turned to freelancing in order to help with their income. Two Atlanta entertainment entrepreneurs, Kayla Shelton and Don Cannon, came up with an app that allows freelance creatives to seek out specialized jobs in an instant. They spoke via Zoom with City Lights producer Summer Evans about this new platform named the Tomorrow App. Here's Kayla talking about how the collaboration with Don began. Well, we met in 2005. I was, at the time, I was with Warner Brothers and we were at like a a video shoot for one of my label mates and um, our manager at the time wanted us to meet Don and his partners because we were about to put a a record on the radio. And so they were the top DJs at the time. And so it was like, okay, let's meet. And then that's how long ago we met and been together ever since. But I want to say 2018-ish, the top of 2018 is when I was taking a step back from designing and was like, hey, you know, I want to do something different. I want to I want to create something with an impact, something that's really useful for, you know, the community, my peers. And so I just took a step back. I started dabbling into production and things like that. Um, and then I had an aha moment where a friend of mine who's long time working in the industry um, on different in film, she hadn't booked a, another project. And so she had started door dashing and she t- came to me. She's like, yeah, girl, it's been, it's been rough. I just started door dashing just to, you know, keep afloat, but you know, I haven't been able to book anything. And, and then that's when the moment was like, dang, like, why is there not like a door dash for creative freelancers so so we can stay in our profession you know and that was really the spark I said that's what I'm gonna do and so I ran it by Don I'm like because he's a a techie like he likes every every app every phone every computer every gadget he has he's reviewed it he's done everything so I'm like if I can run it by him and he's likes it then we're going somewhere so he loved it he understood it us both being creative freelancers technically for you know 15 plus years it just made sense and so we like put our heads together and started building it that's awesome so you had two sides the creative the idea person which was you and then the technical guru that can make it happen and here we have tomorrow yeah exactly so (laughs) the name of the app tomorrow is spelled capital t lowercase m r and capital o why did you guys decide to spell it that way? Yeah, um, the name is also one of those like true to heart stories. We had another name and we were um, looking, we were going out to get a trademark for it. And we saw so many other um, companies with it. And so we were like, dang, we have to scratch it. So I was like talking to a friend at the time. She was working with me. She's kind of like a branding person. And we were just going back, going back and forth. And I'm like, you know what? We need a, we need a new name by like tomorrow. And that's where the name came from. It's like, wow, this is the urgency of what we're dealing with now. And what a lot of clients and creatives are dealing with. They need, they need someone by tomorrow. They need to get paid by tomorrow. Like everything is tomorrow. And so um, that's where the name came from. And it just felt right. And we were like, yeah, this is it. And with the spelling, it was kind of just like, what are the top brands that you think of? You know, Nike, Uber, like words that are four letters, things that are short and to the point. And um, we just were playing around with um, the spelling and we were just like, T-M-R-O. We're like, yeah, tomorrow. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, another one of those things I was like, Don, what do you think? What do you think? And he was like, yeah. Yeah, I was like, no, I was like, that's it. That's what I heard. That's oh, it. okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. Now, it rolls off the tongue. It's yeah. memorable, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Oh, good. 
How would you say tomorrow differs from that of other freelancing apps such as Fiverr and freelancer.com? Yes. Okay. Well, one thing about tomorrow is that, like we said, quick payment is a priority. Um, We pay our freelancers within 48 hours of completing a project and no other platform is doing that. The gig or freelance platforms there, it's usually about seven to 14 days. And if you're outside of a platform and just trying to get paid as a creative, it's 30 to 90 days. So that's one of the main things that we, that is a priority to us that we focus on that makes us different from, you know, Fiverr and Freelancer or any other of the platforms. Secondly, we offer in-person creative services um, as well as digital and remote services. So when you're going to Fiverr, Fiverr is all digital. It's all, you know, remote work. Um, It's all, you know, something that can be sent via email and there's just not a place for you know people that for creatives that actually have to show up on set that actually have to mix and mingle or you know just work alongside a team um in an in-person kind of way so um we just with with that offering we're able to match just like a broader um customer needs with that a feature that we're launching is Instant Book. And Instant Book gives you the capability of booking a creative based on their current availability, their proximity to the client or project, and their drive time. So often in this creative space, you know, there's last minute things that come up or someone doesn't show up or someone doesn't do a good job or someone walks off set and you really need to find someone last minute, or if you're traveling, if you're traveling for a project and this is not your hometown and you don't know who to reach out to and you and you need some people to come, the um, instant book feature allows you to discover and book and pay someone like as easily as you would at Uber. So I, I say it's just easy like Uber. Okay. Don, can you walk us through this app first from the point of view of someone that's looking for a freelance gig versus someone who's looking to hire a freelancer? So in the Tomorrow app, you can what, what you can do is you can set up a profile as a creative. You can, you can also set up a profile as a talent seeker. And you go on the app, you set up a profile, you display a lot of your portfolio products, maybe, you know, just say I'm a graphic designer, for instance. Display a portfolio of those things, tell a little bio about myself, add a picture, and just set up. Just have something for people to explore. You know, as I'm set up as a talent seeker, which I'm always looking for new visionary creatives, I will set up a profile as a talent seeker, uh, a bio, what I've worked on, what I've done, and a list of different jobs that I'm actually putting out there to hire creatives for. And then as soon as you, like he was saying, jobs, we call them projects in the app, but as soon as you post a project, it goes right to the marketplace, the homepage, and anyone that fits into those categories, they're notified, hey, there's a new project in your area, you might want to apply, or, you know, they'll find it, you know, right in there. And how does a freelancer become a verified creative? Verified basically means background checked. So if you proceed and do a background check, then you will be considered a verified user. What I thought was really cool was there's no monthly membership fees. It's free to connect. How are you guys able to continually provide this service to freelancers with no fees? Right now, we take a a 5% commission on each project transaction. So that is how we make money. That's how we're able to continue to keep the lights on one small commission from each transaction. Nowadays, most people have a second job or a side hustle. Uh, In preparation for this interview, I decided to do my own survey on Instagram, asking my followers if they had a second job. And out of 72 that responded, 32 voted yes. How can the Tomorrow app be beneficial to those who are already working a full-time job? Yeah, well, it's really just so seamless and streamlined, the the whole process. It's not something that you have to go out and create a new, a whole website or a whole online shop, you know, and pay for that and pay for marketing. It's all within our platform. So it's as simple as just signing up, creating a, a profile with some video and images, writing a little bit about yourself, setting your rates. 
and you'll just get notifications when there's opportunities in your area or you can just you know if you have some downtime you can review the marketplace and, and start applying for jobs and i'll say from the 32 that voted yes like i didn't think well that was almost half but i will say when i looked at the users most of them were in the entertainment industry so i felt like this just added to the fact that a tomorrow app is needed how would you both say the pandemic has influenced the rise in freelancing? I was just about to get into that. I was going to say, funny as it sounds and how crazy it is, is that we've seen more people take that big step into, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. I need to figure out how to give myself a chance to learn entrepreneurship and get into a field that I really want to get into because now I have time. And a lot of people are also, like you said, are looking for uh, those second opportunities that may flourish into something permanent. And, and that's what I'm starting to see just from my side of the street. A lot of, you know, creators had those side jobs or those full-time jobs. And in the past year and a half, I've gotten a lot of calls. People like, hey, man, I'm not even doing the side hustle. I'm fully doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> or, you know, I'm not, I'm not in that space no more. I'm going full-fledged into my dream. And I'm starting to see that, you know, leaf turn over day after day, month after month. I'm like, oh, snap, okay, cool. Now you have time, you know. But that's what I'm starting to see a lot of, you know. And, I, you know, I know Kayla's starting to see it a lot from her friends and people she's come in contact with, too. Yeah, it's kind of like the pandemic took the training wheels off of everyone's life. <laughs> and it was <laughs> like... Figure out, you know, figure out what you're going to do. You can't rely on the, the old structure of the workforce, you know, um, even like large companies, Fortune 500s, they're looking for freelance talent because they can't necessarily afford to provide the, the full-time benefits of employees and, and they want to diversify and they, and they want, you know, more flexibility in there. So it's just like one of those, it's, it's those times where it's like everyone can dig deep and find out what they're good at and actually make a living out of it. It's the time to learn how to do that. You don't have to be, you know, an entrepreneur, so to speak. But I mean, as a freelancer, you kind of turn into an entrepreneur. And with apps like the Tomorrow app, you're able to guide yourself along that path. I mean, one of the crazy statistics is that in 2019, nearly $1 trillion was contributed to the U.S. economy through freelancers. And in 2020, it rose to 1.2 trillion. So it's growing and it's not going to turn back. I and mean, I think we all can agree uh, it's a new normal. And it's probably going to be great for a lot of people because I know a lot of people that were, couldn't wait to not work their job. You know what I'm saying? So it's like a turning over a new leaf, like Don said. If either of you would have had an app like this when you started out in the entertainment business, what would it have meant for each of your careers? Ooh, that would have meant a lot for my career, <laughs> for real, because, you know, I, I can just pinpoint a time between 98 and 2003, even though I was legitimately going crazy in the club, right? Like, I was doing some, I was doing some big things, but there was times where I needed to get other things rolling. Like I had so many like thoughts in my brain at that time. Like I was drawing at that time, you know, drawing, you know, characters. It was like coming up with my covers for my own mixtapes and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I would have loved to have done some for other people, but my outlet wasn't there at the time, you know what I'm saying? And then, you know, just helping people, you know, I, I wish I could also be seeking things where I was finding more people that could help me organize crates and, and sounds and just, you know, somebody that was rolling with me every day. It was just things like that, that I would have been like, if we had an app then, that would have helped my career in the early, you know, the early 2000s. And, you know, you know, as we moved into later 2000s, just, you know, I'm very big on, again, on visionaries and starting media groups where entertainment lawyers and, you know, videographers and copywriters in those late 2000s, that would have been a tremendous help you know, for me, collecting all these, you know, different creatives and different people. So that's how I look at it in terms of earlier in a career, if there was there, would it have done for me? It would have changed everything for me. 
Yeah, I agree. It would have been a game changer. I mean, I would have been Beyonce, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it would have taken me, it would have taken me so far ahead um, because I mean, even starting off as a songwriter or even a recording artist, you know, there was so much that the labels would do for you, but at times when you needed to express, like, you know, the label might put you in a box and say, okay, you are the next Destiny's Child or you're the next this. And it's like, I feel that, like, I love them, but no, let me, let me show you, you know, what we really are. And if we could have found a videographer to shoot a quick, like, little video of us, or if we had the resources to actually create our own vision that we could show to the label, maybe the, maybe we could have advised the marketing team to say, okay, you guys don't have a plan. Here's our plan. You know what I'm saying? Like that would have been a game changer for us because we had all the ideas, but we didn't have the resources to actually show them who we really were. You know, it was their job to do it and they, they weren't able to do it. So it would have been a game changer. And even then going into my entrepreneurship as like a clothing designer and, and, and running an online store, so many things I took, you know, years trying to develop, months trying to learn how to do this or that you know, if I had an app like this, it would have been a one-stop shop. It would have been like, okay, I have my videographer. I know he's good. I know my photographer. Now I have my models. I have, I could even have found, you know, um, a, yeah, a graphic designer to, to do some of my prints for my clothing. So, I mean, you can imagine how much it's changed and how the internet and technology has really advanced people. So it would have been a game changer. And so I'm so happy like right now that it's like we're able to tap in and, you know, as the world is shifting, we're providing a tool that's helping everyone adjust and like grow at the same time. Kayla Shelton and Don Cannon, co-creators of the Tomorrow app. They were speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Find out more information about the new platform on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the museum director of the Center for Puppetry Arts, Sarah Dilla, and puppeteer Anna Williford tell us about Christmas Town. The story behind the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or Check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E at Lattice Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.